Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is faithfully walking us through the Beatitude series called Life Signs of a Believer. If you've ever wondered what a follower of Jesus looks like, you see this in the Beatitudes. In today's episode, we take a look at the merciful. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be there momentarily as an introduction to Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Ignore the script on the screen there. We're not going to James 4. It's going to be Matthew chapter 18. And what we're studying right now is we're going through what is commonly known as the Beatitudes. As we've said before, it gets its name from the Latin word beatus, which is the first word of each of these, these stanzas, which says, blessed are, blessed are. And we know that these are referring to, we call them the life signs of a believer. It's not simply blessed, meaning that you are happy, that God has given you some kind of blessing, that you're just, you're, you're some earthly temporary thing. It's sunny today, it's not raining, it's not windy, it's not blowing the roof shingles off my house, I'm happy. It's not that kind of happy, it's happy are you that your name is written in the book of life. You're happy about the right things. And so when we look at the Beatitudes, we understand that he's not just giving us a formula of how to live a happy life. He's showing us your, this is what a child of the kingdom looks like. You remember Matthew 4.23, leading up to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, Jesus is going about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 5-7 through 7 is a gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus is describing what his children look like because there's a lot of people that get confused about what God's children look like. We think that we're born again because I can go to the front cover of my Bible, and years ago, my mama, she wrote my name in there with a date, and I remember the date, and so I'm saved. Are you? Are you saved because you've been to church all your life? Are you saved and born again because uh, you you got wet, you went into a baptistry, you you take the Lord's Supper from time to time? Is a shot glass and a cracker going to save you? Is this what saves a person? Is this how I know I'm a believer? That at one point in time, I recited a mantra As a kid, you know, dearly Lord Jesus, dear Lord Jesus, please come save me, please come save me. I've been a sinner, I'm a sinner. And we just kind of went through a mantra, but nothing really went through our hearts. But now I know I'm a believer because I prayed a prayer. Is that the confidence that we have that we're a child of God? No. Blessed, happy are you when you see these attributes in your life because it means that the life of God is flowing through you. And when these attributes are not in your life, You have every reason to doubt whether or not the life of God is in you because these attributes is what God looks like. And and to say that I have Jesus in my heart, that the Holy Spirit indwells my life, these attributes should be consistently and habitually flowing out from my life. The first attribute, you know, as we went through, you know, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. I come to God hat in hand. I've got nothing to offer you. I'm poor and impoverished. I need your grace. You know, and we continue to go through these attributes like a sort of like a growth chart of a believer. And the later attributes uh, begin to become ours and increasing. Well, today we're kind of in the, ourselves in the middle of the list here. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Merciful means that we are full of the mercy of God. The mercy of God is God's uh, God's loving toward us in, by which because of Jesus' death and sacrifice on the cross for us, he withholds punishment that we deserve. There are certain things that you and I deserve, and it isn't, and I don't mean good things. You and I, because of our sins, because we've offended an infinitely holy God, deserve an infinite payment of that sin, and that's why hell itself is eternal. That's what we deserve, but God didn't give us that, and so we can be happy about this. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Who is it that's received the mercy of God? That God has saved you, he's withheld the punishment that you rightfully deserve. It's demonstrated by those whose hearts themselves are full of mercy. That you, because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, are able to now show mercy to others based upon what Christ did, not because they deserved it. Are you that kind of person? If you are a merciful person, that's an evidence that the life of God is flowing through you. If we don't have mercy, what do we get? 
We get the Hatfields and the McCoys. Y'all here are familiar with the Hatfields and McCoys. I mean, that took place like 98 miles from where we're seated right here. Uh, the world's most probably famous and bitter feud, anywhere from 20 to 100 different deaths are attributed to this, took place over about a 48-year period of time. It was just this horrific, horrific bloodbath of these families who lived in decades after decades of animosity and trained their children to hate these other people as well. It's, it's a horrible thing. And it started out with just some general underlying latent stresses and tensions that were there. There was disputes over timber and land rights. There were some stresses about different political associations. Not that that can ever cause division in a country, but it did with them. They had, they had some tensions because the railroad was moving in and kind of encroaching on land. And so there's this, this underlying tension in both families. And all it needed at this point was just something to set it off. And it could be something petty, like, I don't know, maybe the dispute over the rights to a razorback pig. That's all it took. Can that ever happen in a church that we all, I mean, y'all smiling, you look good, most of you smell good, and this is, this, you know, we're here, but, but you're bringing stress with you to church right now, aren't you? Some of you are thinking, man, I, I lost a lot of shingles off my roof last night. I lost some siding yesterday. Uh, there was, it, there's tension in your life. I can't pay my bills. My kid's bowing up against me. My wife and I, we fought on the way to church right before singing the praise to God. That's my morning, and then sometimes we get to church and all it takes is something little, something petty, something we don't like, something we disagree with, and it can set off a feud even in the church. And that's where things like uh, angry business meetings come from. That's where things like where you have people who this family sits over here and this family sits over here because we don't sit together, because we don't get along, and we come to the same church, but we're never going to talk to each other. It's the kind of thing that leads Christians, you know, you're going down the aisle over at the Kroger and you see, you know, somebody you don't agree with, you know, something you have a problem with, he's buying his Honey Nut Cheerios over there, and you're not going to walk past him because he might look up and see you, and so you decide, you know, I don't need those Cheerios so much, and you're going to go down a different aisle, and it causes God's people to pull apart and separate because we allow little petty things to get in between us. And we won't allow what Jesus did on the cross to change how we treat people. So no, we need Matthew chapter five and verse seven. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. That whole concept of blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy, that people who have received mercy should be the ones giving it out is the very essence of our passage we're gonna be looking at today. Now you can flip over to Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is going to be teaching a parable about how to get along with others and how to resolve our conflict. In this same passage, in this context, he shares the very famous Matthew 18 passage. If your brother has a problem, you need to go to him alone. If he doesn't listen to you, bring two or three witnesses and that whole process. This is the story Jesus teaches to illustrate how to get along better with people. And so what we're going to learn from here is, number one, we forg as Christians, if we've been forgiven, we forgive often. Verse 21 says, Then Peter came up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as, I don't know, seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So I want you to notice first that Peter is the one talking. Peter, somebody who's following Jesus. But what does Peter want to know? How many times do I have to treat my brother with love? At what point in time can I cut somebody off and say, never again are you going to be led in to hurt me? When can I tell somebody, you've gone too far, I'm never going to forgive that. How far do I go? And so he offers up seven times. Where, where does Peter get this number seven times? Well, at that time, Peter probably thought he was pretty generous because according to rabbinic tradition, Rabbis, inappropriately applying the book of Amos and how God dealt with the enemies of Israel, said you only have to forgive somebody three times, and at that point, it's Hatfield-McCoy time. It's get out the shotgun, <laughs> it's train your kids to hate them time. Three times. And so for Peter to offer seven, he's thinking, man, I'm, I'm more than doubling what the Pharisees are doing. Surely Jesus is going to say, wow, what a loving, forgiving fellow you are, Peter. But instead, what does Jesus tell him? Seventy-seven times. 
Now, if you have a Bible that says 70 times seven, just understand there's a slight disparity there depending on whether on what Jesus is, if whether or not that translation is quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. If you do, you're getting 70 times seven. If it's, if it's directly translating the, from the Hebrew itself, you get 77 times. Now, don't let that throw you. Both of them are teaching the exact same thing. Stop counting. It's a big number. Quit counting. I mean, seriously, Kevin Riddle, are you gonna sit there with a ledger? And is he writing things down? Okay, this brother's on number 24. We're getting close, boys. I'm about ready to cut off this guy's love. We're not gonna do that. Jesus like, stop counting. 77 times. There are some theologians who believe that Jesus is actually quoting Genesis 4.24 here. There's a fellow in your Old Testament that when you read it, it almost feels out of context. You read about this fellow named Lamech, and he's just... He's not a nice guy. He's this proud unbeliever. And he's harsh. He's like, and he's boasting about this. Yeah, I killed a man once for striking me. You know, he's just this, you have this offense that takes place and the guy overreacts because he's too good of a person. How dare you strike me? I will take your life. And that's what the kind of guy Lamech was. He was this evil, proud, arrogant. What, you only get one wife, Pat? I got myself, you know, all kinds of wives. And that's Lamech. And so what Lamech said in Genesis 4, 24, he says, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech will be avenged 77-fold. You think Cain was an important figure? Don't you dare go against me because I'm gonna get revenge 77-fold. And that's the way the proud heart is. If you're gonna hurt me, I'm gonna pay you back with interest. I'm gonna pay you back 77-fold. That's what the proud heart does. It holds people back. Proud people will not forgive. In fact, I'm going to seek vengeance against you 77-fold. And many theologians believe that Jesus is flipping this, saying, you remember Lamech from the Old Testament, proud, arrogant guy, got easily offended with people, killed people for hitting him? If pride will cause you to seek revenge 77-fold, then humility in Christ should cause you to forgive somebody 77-fold. Stop counting. And that's the point of what Jesus is sharing here. We forgive often because that's how God forgives us, isn't it? First John 1, 9, we love that verse, don't we? Because we need it every day. If we confess our sins, what does God do? What do you know God will do every time you confess your sins? He's faithful. And that word faithful is, is, is communicating this idea. Every time you ask forgiveness, you're never having to wonder, did, I, did God cut me off yet? Did I reach my 77 times with God. No, God, every time we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of, of what? All unrighteous. There's nothing we can do that God will not forgive is what he's communicating here. And if we're going to forgive like God, we've got to forgive in this way. Every time they ask that there is no limitations to our forgiveness, that if you do it this many times, or if there's this one thing, if you do that, oh, I would never forgive him if he ever did that. If that ever comes out of our mouth, you need to understand, you didn't get that from Jesus. You might have gotten that from Lamech, but you're not getting that from Jesus. Number two, we forgive because we have been forgiven ourselves. So Jesus is gonna tell a story to illustrate his point after Peter offered to forgive seven times. He says in verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, the master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had, and for payment to be made. Now, this king is not evil here. He is doing what he should be doing. This is the just thing. This man owes a great debt. He cannot pay it. He should rightfully and justly, according to the law, he should have to pay. And because this is a near infinite debt, his time in paying is going to be essentially infinite. Well, Jesus is speaking here about the kingdom of heaven. We understand the kingdom of heaven. Jesus speaks often to this. Matthew 5 through 7 is about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is where God rules. And right now, he's ruling in our hearts. And eventually, he's going to give us a land over which he rules directly as well. So he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. It's compared to a king, that's God, who wishes to settle accounts with his servants, those who serve God. We owed God a great debt, didn't we? That's how God sees sin. Sin is a debt that we owe against God. And Jesus paid it all. Well, in this story, his servants, they all owe this great debt, but one servant in particular owed a pretty crazy debt. What does your Bible say? 10,000 
talents. Now, we don't use talents so much today to describe money, but it was the largest weight of measure in measuring out gold and silver and things. And throughout the Bible, a talent could be anywhere from 75 to 128 pounds. And so there's no way to exactly understand how much this man owed, but I'll give you a couple of illustrations. Understand this, that the entire tax revenue at the time of Jesus to the Roman government from the provinces of Idumea, which was just south of Judah, Okay, Idumea, Judea, and Samaria, and Galilee, those four provinces all put together, that's a lot of people. Their entire annual tax revenue, 900 talents. So this man owed more than 11 years of back taxes for everybody in four whole provinces as they reported income to Rome. Consider this, when they collected talents of gold for the temple, 8,000 is what they collected from the people. 8,000 talents, and mind you, the Temple of Solomon was the greatest structure that the world had ever seen. It's this enormous, everything is covered in gold. Everything is, it would just shine in the sun, radiating the glory of God because the temple was such that when you looked at it, it was supposed to reveal a little bit about what God is like. And so this gold radiated this beauty. It was filled with gold, 8,000 talents. And so this man owed more than the temple of God. Some people have calculated this to be anywhere uh, as, as far as three and a half billion dollars this man owed. And this man is not Elon Musk. He's a servant. He's a servant. He can't afford that. He'll never be able to afford that. In a hundred lifetimes, he could not afford this debt. And that's the point. He owes an impossible sum. The, his only hope is not his ability to repay, which we cannot. Our good works can never repay back God. His only hope now is the pity of the master. Will the master, will the king show him pity? So verse 26, he did the only thing he can do, and that's to get on his knees. You can't impress God with your good works, but you can get on your knees. He fell on his knees imploring him, say, have patience with me and I'll pay you back everything. And then verse 27, out of pity for him, it's the pity of the king, not the ability of the servant. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, knowing that's, that's, by the way, an illustration of what God is saying about you and I. All of us, for our sins, we've offended an infinitely great God, and what, the debt of sin that we owe against him is infinite. There's nothing we can do to pay that back. The only thing we can do is get on our knees and throw ourselves at the mercy of God and pray that he will have pity and mercy upon us. And he did. And the moral of the story, the idea is, if somebody's been forgiven that much, who on earth are we, Lamech, that we're going to avenge ourselves 77-fold on people for the offenses they do against us? Will we not think back and remember the great debt of sin we owed against God, and he forgave that? But we, as a fellow servant, are we going to forgive other fellow servants? Truly, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's an evidence that we've received the mercy of God when we show mercy to others. So we forgive because we ourselves have been forgiven. What if we don't forgive? If habitually, as a way of life, people know me to be an angry, vindictive, cruel, harsh, unmerciful person as a habitual way of life, that's just kind of who I generally am. It's revelation that we're, the life of God is not in us. It's an evidence that speaks against our conversion. Or we can let Jesus' little brother speak to it. In James 2.13, he says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That's the whole moral of the story. You're going to see it a little bit later on. Number three, we forgive because others, they desperately need our forgiveness. Are people going to hurt you? You're following God. Is God going to give you this, this lovely flowery path to heaven where nobody ever bothers you, nobody hurts you, nobody offends you, nobody hurts your feelings, nobody sins against you or wrongs you? We're going to need to show this love to others. Somebody is going to hurt us, and it's represented in a different servant in verse 28. But when that same servant, the one who just got forgiven everything, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, a man like him, not the king, who owed him a hundred denarii, seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. Does this scenario look familiar to you? Did we not just see this just a few moments earlier with 
a sum of 10,000 talents. This man couldn't pay it back, and he gets on his knees and begs for forgiveness, and this man was forgiven. Will this man give what he had been given? I mean, he is owed a sum of money. It's 100 denarii. A denarius was a single day's wages for your average common working day man, you know, a guy out mining coal. What would he earn in a day? That's a denarius. And so this man owed roughly three months' wages. So it's not a small sum, but it's, it's nowhere near owing the temple of God to somebody. It said in verse 30, he refused and he went and put him in prison so he should pay back the debt. Wow. Do we ever put people in prisons because they, we feel like emotionally they owe us? They've hurt us and so we feel like they need to be paid back? And we kind of, we take, uh, we take a form of vengeance against them, try to extract from them, make them hurt like we hurt. In a marriage situation, it might be like one mate cutting off the other mate, refusing them either physical or emotional intimacy, and we just back off and say, huh, I hope you enjoy living a single life. You know, and we just kind of, we, we stop giving and we stop being loving toward one another. We can do that. We can put people in emotional prisons, pay back all that you owe, that we want them to hurt as they have caused us to suffer. What do we call that when we want someone to suffer for the sufferings we've received from them? It's called revenge. Are we supposed to be vengeful people as Christians? Is there anywhere in the Bible, I don't know, Romans 12, 19, that might speak against that? It says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Do we need a Greek word study on that? Never avenge yourselves. We understand what that means, don't we? It means there's never a circumstance where God needs you to do his work for him. There's never a circumstance where somebody is going to get away with something. But what does God promise us? In your not seeking vengeance against them, what, what can you rest on? Vengeance is mine. I will repay. So what are we communicating to God when we do the repaying? When we get vengeance, when we refuse to forgive, when we won't show mercy when someone has hurt us and we're gonna make them suffer, we're gonna make them understand, you don't do that to me. I don't have to take that. When we have that kind of spirit, what are we saying to God? I don't trust you, God. I don't trust that you will repay, Lord. I think that you need me because you're not gonna do right by this situation. You need Heath Bauer here to go out and to punish people to pay them back for the harm that they have done one so great and important as myself. So anytime we're giving people emotional or physical vengeance of any kind, it's a declaration of a lack of faith in God that I don't really believe that God will, will repay, that there are circumstances in my life that God requires me to take vengeance for myself and I will not forgive. Number four, we forgive to avoid hurting other people. Verse 31, um, it says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went in and reported to their master all that had taken place. Who are the fellow servants? These are other people that serve the king. These are other brothers and sisters in Christ, people of the same family. When, they, when anger and bitterness and unforgiveness is allowed to stay in a family. Are the other children gonna get hurt by that? Moms and dads, have you ever seen that? Maybe you're one of those that grew up in a, a home where there was a lack of forgiveness. Did that impact your life at all? I guarantee it did. You probably still carry emotional scars from that to this day. Whenever there's unforgiveness in a, in a family, whether it be a, a physical family or a church family, it's gonna scar those around you. In particular, Jesus says that the fellow servants were greatly distressed. Greatly distressed doesn't mean that they were a little bit bothered. It's used in Matthew 26, 37 to describe Jesus when he was praying at Gethsemane. He was greatly distressed. How stressed was Jesus when he was praying at Gethsemane, when he was looking forward to taking all the sins of the universe, past, present, and future, all upon himself, and be separated from the love of God for the first time in his life? How did Jesus feel when he was praying? The man sweat drops of blood. That's what greatly distressed looked like. And it's, a, it's an actual physical phenomenon that the physician Luke records in his gospel where the capillaries burst around the sweat glands and cause the blood to mingle with the sweat and you can literally sweat drops of blood. How stressed do you, have you ever done that? 
I mean, do you feel that way just before a math test, you know, or before something important? You don't feel that way. Chances are we haven't felt this kind of distress, and yet this is the term that Jesus uses in his parable to describe how people in a church feel, people who are sons and daughters of God, we're all servants of the king, how we feel when we see a lack of forgiveness taking place between two children of God. One won't remember what God has done for them, and they're going to hold them captive. They're going to complain about them. They're going to gossip. They're going to backbite. They're going to slander. They will not forgive. They won't let it go. Three, four, five, 20 years later, they're still talking about how somebody in a church wronged them at some point in time. You're living in continual and habitual bitterness. Does that affect the church that you're in? It's going to cause the people around you in your personal home and in your spiritual home, everybody's going to be greatly distressed. And so we forgive, if nothing else, just out of love for other people. Don't drag them into your hate. Number five, we forgive to avoid hurting other people, or avoid hurting ourselves, rather. Verse 32, we're going to see, and, and following, we're going to see how this affects us. Will a lack of forgiveness cause me, myself, any kind of emotional or physical harm? Well, verse 32 says, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. We need to remember that when God looks down upon his children, and he sees one of his children that he's forgiven the world, and they won't forgive somebody else for some petty thing, or it may seem big to you, but... God sees when we won't forgive, when we've been forgiven much, how does God view us? He sees us as a wicked, not a good person, not a just person, not, oh, you were just in doing so, you were right in doing that. He really had that coming. When God sees us forgive, and it doesn't matter what it is, when we will not forgive, God views us as a wicked person. This same word wicked is used in 1 John 3.12 to describe wicked Cain who killed his brother. That's the level of wickedness that God equates to a lack of forgiveness, this, in this hatred. You say, well, I don't hate. Hatred is, is simply the uh, antonym of agape. It's mean, instead of showing unconditional love, I will not show him love. I'm going to withhold that love. In fact, I'm going to be against him. I'm going to speak against them. I'm going to do things against them. I want them to be miserable. That's what biblical hatred looks like. In fact, 1 John 3, verse 14 and 15, right after he calls, uses the same word wicked to describe Cain, he says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. One of the greatest evidences that you're a child of God, don't look on the front cover of your Bible, look at how you treat people. You want to prove to yourself that you're a born-again child of God? How, does, does the gospel change how you treat other people? If the gospel doesn't change how you treat people, let me just tell you this with all the love that I have, your faith is a sham. If the love that Jesus gave you that you say converted your heart will not cause you to then change how you treat other people and to treat them with love, kindness, mercy, and forgiveness, your faith, your faith is fake. It's how the Pharisees would love. He says, we know that we pass from death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You're going to hell. You're unbeliever. It's a life sign of the believer. Just like physical respiration and, and breathing, and it's an evidence that you're, you have physical life. This is one of the evidences that the life of God is truly in you, that your faith is real. It changes how you treat other humans. And then he goes on to say, everyone who hates his brother, you know, you're, you're not showing agape love to them. You're refusing to show them unconditional love. You're going to be unmerciful toward them. You're, you're angry toward them. There's a, there's a certain amount of hatred there. And he says, and whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has life abiding in him. We, we have no business being unmerciful. Well, the story continues on. Verse 32 here says, um, I forgave you all the debt because you had pleaded with me. Okay, the king is talking to this unmerciful servant. I forgave you all this debt because you pleaded, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you. This is how God sees things. If I forgave you so much, you should be the most forgiving person in the room. If you won't be, perhaps it's because you never received my forgiveness to begin with. We're supposed to recall what God did for us on the cross. 
and let it change how we treat people. Now, is it possible for someone to be a true born-again believer and have a circumstance arise where you are not forgiving towards someone else? It can happen. It happens here in our story. We have this, this servant who, remember, this servant is truly a born-again believer because it says he's been forgiven his debt. He's been forgiven. But he simply won't apply that to other people. What is the master gonna do with him? Verse 34, it says, in his anger, that's how God feels toward us when he sees us being unmerciful, unforgiving, bitter, and unwilling to resolve things with other believers. God's angry at you, and he's angry with me when I do that. In his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay back his debt. Important, he didn't say deliver this man to the executioners. They didn't burn this man at the stake. They didn't behead him. Okay, he's not executed. He's not thrown in hell. But where does he go? To jail. Can we ever do that to ourselves? That because of our lack of forgiveness, our unwillingness to show mercy to someone, that we enter, if you will, into a, a prison fashioned by our own hands. Have you seen that? We're like Otis Campbell, who's with me. Andy Griffith. You need to watch Andy. You can learn things from him. Back when uh, TV shows had something called morals. Well, Otis Taylor was the town drunk, so, but at least they understood that it was wrong. And Otis, he'd get drunk, he'd get a little tipsy, and he'd come into the jail, and he knew he had done wrong, and, and he would get into the key off the wall, and he'd let himself into prison, and, and he would put himself in jail. And at any point in time, Otis could reach out and get the key, and unlock the door and let himself out. This is a good picture of what forgiveness is to us. When we choose to be bitter towards somebody, unforgiving, unmerciful, we're gonna hold an ongoing resentment toward them rather than to work it out. We have entered into a prison. God delivers us into a prison of our own making. Is that person gonna be happy? Are you happy in prison? No, you're, you're limited in what you do. You can't enjoy everything that life has to offer because you're in prison. And what does it take to get out of that prison? There's a key on the wall that's within our reach, Otis Campbell. Okay, there's a key on the wall that all we have to do is reach out of our jail cell. It's available to us at any time and we can unlock the key or the door with that key of forgiveness. At any point in time, we can let it go. We can let ourselves out of jail. All we have to do is to love others the way God loved us to let go of that bitterness, to let go of that anger, that hatred that we have toward them, and just to forgive them. Because when we, when we choose not to forgive, it removes our ability to enjoy life. Have you felt that? Whenever you're bitter against somebody, you won't forgive them, is, are those your favorite memories? I mean, do you take selfies of those days? Here's me, all bitter and angry at my friend. Click, and let me post that on Facebook. You're not happy about that. You don't want to remember those days. You're miserable. You're like the Count of Monte Cristo. You ever read that, read that book? It's very quiet right now. You didn't read the 1,276-page novel by Alexander Dumas, did you? I did, and it took me a long time. It wasn't even an easy read. Um, and what I discovered is the book is wildly different than the, the 1976 and the 2002 movies called The Count of Monte Cristo. Very, very, very different books, but nonetheless, if you, you, know, if you don't read the book, there's always movies you can go watch. But in that story, you have this average, everyday, workaday fellow named uh, Edmond Dantes. And he grows, he grows up without privilege, but he has character. And so he is able to get a ship captaincy, what would you call it? He's made a ship captain. And so he, really early, and his best friend is like this wealthy fellow, grew up spoiled. And, and he's really jealous that Edmond got his this, this captain of a ship. And, and so he decides to take revenge against him. Gets all kinds of other people against him, magistrates and uh, ship, former crew members and things, and they speak evil of him. And he works out a deal where Dantes is sent out to this prison where you send the people who are actually innocent, the ones that the country is ashamed of. And so he sends them to this place called the Chateau d'If. It's this island prison and you can't get out. And inside that prison, he meets this old priest who is in there because supposedly he knows where a treasure is, which he did. And he gives this map to Dantes as he's about to die. And Dantes finds himself getting out of prison and he has access to this massive fortune. He's the wealthiest man on earth now. 
And yet he uses that fortune, if you're familiar with the story, to get revenge on everybody that hurt him. I will pay you back. If you've seen the movie, he says, they must suffer as I have suffered. And so he goes back to paying back. He has this whole elaborate plan of paying back the magistrate and his buddy and even his fiance at the time who then married his best friend while he was in jail. And, and while she's trying to let him know that, hey, we thought you were dead, and she shows him a string around his finger, which was a placeholder for a wedding band, and saying, hey, it's still on my finger. We're not, you know, let go of your revenge plot. And you, you see old Jim Caviezel in the 2002 movie, and he's shouting at her and says, don't rob me of my hate. If you ever loved me, don't rob me of my hate. It's all I have, says the wealthiest man in the world. And that's what a lack of forgiveness does. You can't enjoy anything you have anymore. You can't appreciate the fact that you have a beautiful family, that you have a wonderful relationship with your wife. You can't appreciate the fact that God has provided your needs, that you have a home, that you probably have more than one car, that you take vacations. You can't enjoy any of that anymore. You can't enjoy a good meal because you're always thinking about that person who hurt you. And we're in a prison of our own design. And in that prison, we are miserable. And that's the point of this whole parable, isn't it? In verse 35, Jesus says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, to the ones who are listening to this story, so my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. God says, you want to go to the Chateau d'If? You want to be in prison? You want to go and, and venture out into a life of, of vengeance so that you, you think that hate is the only thing that you have anymore? You can't even appreciate the blessings of God? Go ahead, be unforgiving. This is how God is going to do to each one of us when we're unmerciful and we will not restore that relationship with another brother or sister in Christ. God will do this to us. He says, if we don't forgive our brother from the heart. From the heart means that you really mean it. It means that as a, as a little kid, moms, dads, you ever do this? The kids, they get in a fight. And when they're all done, you force them to make up. Do they do a good job with that? Here, I want you to tell your brother you're sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, snarl on the face. I mean, this is sincere. Not convinced by that mom, you're like, well, hug it out. And so the kids, they go up and they're like, you know, they're hugging them like they have leprosy. You know, there's no love there. It's not from the heart. They're doing it because they don't want further punishment. But it's not from the heart. And God says, we have to learn to forgive from the heart. We don't just do a superficial forgiveness to try to avoid the wrath of God. It's from my heart. I no longer emotionally hold you accountable for the ways that you've harmed me. I let it go. It's at that point in time, Otis, that we've gotten out of the jail cell and we can start to enjoy life again. So if you won't forgive for their sake, will you forgive people for your own sake that you don't just become a miserable, angry curmudgeon who hurts everybody around you because you won't let go of your pain? Well, number six, we see that we, we, when we forgive, we have to forgive as God forgives. Ephesians 4, 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another how? As God in Christ forgave you. He, again, he's this, that's the message of this parable. You're supposed to recall how God in Christ forgave you as you are now forgiving other people. And so that begs the question, how did God forgive us? I have a few brief points here and then we're going to end. How did God forgive us? Well, see, A, God initiated that forgiveness. In the context of Matthew 18 and forgiving your brother and the parable of the unforgiving servant... In Matthew 18, we read this in verse 12. What do you think? If a man has 100 sheep, one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 90 and 9 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? God initiated that forgiveness. Most of us, we feel like, I, we always say, I found God. Theologically speaking, did you find God? Or did God find you? Did the sheep go looking for the shepherd? Or did the shepherd go looking for the sheep? God initiated that forgiveness process. The Bible tells us, Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, still angry with God, still sinning against God, shaking our fist in rebellion, going my own way, doing my own thing, at that point in time, Christ died in our place. So God initiates the forgiveness process. So when we think about forgiving others, who should initiate when there is a problem between two people? It's the one who's been forgiven by God. It's the spiritual person. 
Galatians 6.1 says, brother, if you see a brother or taken in a trespass, there's a sin in their life. He says, you who are spiritual, restore that person. Restoring people are spiritual people. Who is it that doesn't restore? Who is it that doesn't forgive others? It's the unspiritual. Right here in the context of our passage here, Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, you know he wronged you, go and tell him his fault. Who should initiate forgiveness? Say, well, I didn't start it. It's not my fault. They should come to me. And you're right, they should, but they're not. So now what are you gonna do? Live in bitterness, misery, anger? You know, go ahead and start setting up, making your bed in the Chateau d'If. Is that where you wanna live your whole life? When you know that your brother has sinned against you, it says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And this is important because you know what I've found many times when I feel offended with somebody? The person that hurt me doesn't even know they hurt me. So what, you're gonna be miserable your whole life because you're unwilling to take the first step? Or what if you're the one that you're aware that you hurt them? Matthew 5, 23, you're talking, and uh, you're at this particular place, he's at an altar giving his gift to God, he's worshiping God, he says, if you realize that your brother has ought against you, and you know that that brother's offended against you, does it matter if, you, if he deserves to be offended? Well, he shouldn't be offended, I'm not gonna go talk to him, I didn't do anything worthy of being offended but you know that he has a problem with you. What do you do? It says, leave your gift at the altar, stop pretending to worship God, and go to your brother and make it right. And then come back and offer God your gift. So what if I know that they're upset with me or I'm upset with them? It doesn't matter who started it. You who are spiritual, restore that brother. Spiritual people operate this way. And Jesus said in Matthew 18, go and tell him, his fault between you and him alone. Is that an important thing to obey? That when somebody hurts me, I go, boy, that no good Joe Dixon. Do you know what he did to me the other day? Let me tell you about Joe. Oh my goodness. Let me just go on with the ways. I can't believe he did this. And what's that gonna do? Is that gonna increase the odds that Joe wants to reconcile with me? It's gonna put up a wall. A brother offended, Proverbs says, is, is harder to win than a strong castle. At that point, we are setting up concrete barriers in between us. So when we have a problem with one another, you have a problem with me, I have a problem with you, we, it says we go to them and we tell them their fault to him alone. Him alone. It doesn't mean he's a prayer request. It doesn't mean that uh, I, I tell my buddies. It doesn't mean I get on the phone and call my, my other friends and I just, let, I just gather a posse of people to be mad at this person that I'm mad at. That's not love. It says, go tell him your fault, his fault alone. So God initiates the forgiveness. We initiate. Doesn't matter if I'm guilty or they're guilty. If I know that there's a problem, I'm gonna be the one to initiate this process and make it right because I'm gonna be a spiritual person. B, we forgive often. Our context here today, uh, Matthew 18, 22, we forgive 77 times. Stop your counting. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love does not keep a record of wrongs suffered. Literally means to keep a ledger. It's the Greek word legitsomai. You get the word logic. That you're not calculating their offenses. Oh, look what Jacob Medley did to me. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to keep track of that. I will remember. You know, and we just, we keep a ledger of people's offenses against us. No, we forgive often. We forgive fully. It kind of goes along with what I just said. Jeremiah 31, 34. When God forgives us, it says, God says this, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Now, God is omniscient. How does he for, forget sins? It's not that he doesn't know that it took place. This particular word for remember means to recall, to dwell upon, but it also means to mention again. That God is never going to put us and our sins together in the same sentence ever again. That's how God, aren't you glad God does that? Aren't you glad that for eternity, you're not gonna have a wanted poster in heaven with your face on it? Wouldn't that be miserable? You know, with all the sins that you've ever done and you just live eternally in the shame of the sins that you've done against God, God says, no, I'm gonna separate you, you and your sins as far as the east is from the west. I'm gonna remember it no more. I'm gonna choose, I know it's there, but I'm gonna choose never to bring it forward to let everybody look. Hey, look at how they offended me. And the Bible says, if we're gonna forgive someone, we forgive them fully. We don't bring it back up. We don't sit here and recall it to our mind. We don't keep hitting rewind, play. And we just go over that whole offense over and over and over until we just get bitter. 
We don't recall it to mind and we don't mention it again. And, the, and finally here, D, we restore them back to their original state. When God forgives us, God doesn't just say, well, I'm not gonna punish you, but do you mind just maybe living 50 miles that way? I don't wanna be near you ever again. God brings you in close and he restores us. We all know the parable of the prodigal son and he did the worst thing possible, basically said, dad, I wish you were dead, but I still want your money. I mean, that's what he said. And so he takes it and he wastes it and now he's living with pigs and he's looking at what the pigs are eating going, man, I'm sure I'm hungry. My father's servants eat better than this. I'm gonna go back home. Maybe I can at least be a servant. Won't be a son, but at least I can eat better. Maybe I can get a job there. And it says, while he was a long way off, remember it says that the father ran to meet him. By the way, that's a reminder. The parable of the prodigal son really should be called the parable of the forgiving father because that's really who it's about. This is how God forgives us. And that a long way off, the moment we begin to pivot and turn in repentance and toward forgiveness, the father runs to our side. And when he does, you remember what he says, don't we, in Luke 15, 22? Bring quickly. The, I mean, he's, he's not slow to make this happen. There's no period of time where this man has to slowly be let back into the father's good graces, quickly. And what does he bring? He brings him four things. He says, quickly bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. These four things that the father does is intended to be a picture for us to how we forgive other people and how we restore them. Consider the things that he was giving. First he says, bring the best robe. Your robe was how you are presented to other people. How you dressed changes the way people see you, doesn't it? And right now, how is this boy dressed? He smells like pigs, and he's wearing tatters, okay? He's, he's, he's in just filthy, clearly he doesn't have any shoes on right now. He's, he's a slave himself, a servant himself. And the father wants to put the best robe on him. To what end? The father wants to change how other people see him. Father, father isn't just gonna say, well, I forgive you. I'm not gonna hold this against you, but I, I'm gonna tell everybody about all the things that you did. No, the father wants to protect this boy's reputation. Let's put a robe back on him. And so his honor is restored. And then he says, let's, let's put shoes on his feet. Only the slaves were barefoot. He didn't trust them not to run off or do something. And, but children of the father, they wore shoes. It shows here that there's a certain measure of trust that is restored. Father says, get a ring, put it on his finger. Now, this isn't a decorative ring, right? Not a, not a diamond ring, not a mood ring, not something else. It's not just something to make him look good. This was a signet ring, from which we get the word signature. It means this boy is now entrusted with carrying out family business. He can impress that into a seal of wax, and he can buy, sell, and trade on the family's behalf. And so his position is restored. His authority is restored. And then they kill the fatted calf. You only did that at times of festivity. The father's like, let us celebrate. When we choose to forgive and we start restoring a person like that, what is also restored? We allow there to be a, a period of joy to come in. So when we forgive somebody, it's not like we hold them back and we just kind of growl at them. I'll let you back in, but boy, you didn't have it coming. We, we restore the, the joy. We restore the spirit of our relationship again. You ever wonder how the Hatfield McCoy feud ended? after dozens of deaths, and eventually the leader of the Hatfields, with a name like Devil Ants, you know that guy's gonna be getting in trouble, okay? Him and some of his, his family members, they got arrested, and their trial was there in Pikeville. And they got arrested, and the families eventually come together and say, hey, we've been suffering for the last like 50 years on this thing, we need to let this go. We've lost too many good people. And at that point, they had this enormous family reunion together of the Hatfields and the McCoys. Hundreds and hundreds of people gathered together at this reunion. They just had to finally make a decision. We're tired of paying the heavy price of unforgiveness. Let's just put it together. And they did. And they put that feud behind them. And sometimes God wants us to do that in our own families or even within churches. Yeah, you've got legitimate gripes. People have legitimately hurt you. How long do you want that cycle of pain to continue? You hit me, I hit you. You hit me, I hit you. Anybody wanna guess what happens next? You hit me, I hit you, okay? And that, that's just gonna keep on going. 
until somebody inserts grace and they bring the cross into play and we show forgiveness and mercy and we don't hold against them the punishment they rightfully deserve. And when we do that, we reunite relationships. We do that because that's how we've been forgiven. We do that because it's an evidence of the spirit of God within us. It's one of the life signs of the believer. Blessed are the merciful, those who show mercy, those who forgive, those who release that pain. Why? For they shall receive mercy. Who is it that's a born-again child of God? They're not hard to spot. They're some of the most merciful people that you know. And I pray that you're one of them. Let's close in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you this morning as we study your word, as we read through these beatitudes, as we study the parable of the unforgiving servant. God, I beg of you that there not be a soul here who, as we are preaching, they're boiling over with frustration or anger at somebody that they just can't let it go. There's been a pain in their life. There's been an offense that took place, and they feel that they're too important to let that go and to forgive them that sin, that grievance that they have against them. God, help us this morning to lay down our offenses. Even if that person is long since gone and dead, God, help us to reach out of the jail cell of our life and to take the keys of forgiveness off the wall and to allow ourselves a life free of trying to be bitter and angry and exact revenge against somebody. Instead, Lord, help us to look backward to the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, we who owed 10,000 talents, this innumerable sum. God, who are we to be like Lamech who withholds forgiveness, who instead exacts punishment 77-fold? Instead, may we be the humble. May we be like Christ who is infinitely offended and yet forgave infinite sins. I pray that that life sign of the believer would be present in each one of us here this morning. And if it's not God, help us to leave the gift at the altar. Help us not to just go forward with just fake worship, but to go to that person today, to go to them alone, to go to them in love with the intention of gaining our brother to restore that relationship. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.